0: Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, as always a very busy show ahead of us tonight on Mooney Goes Wild, just Seven Sleeps to Go to Christmas and a Moony Goes Wild special all about the 12 birds of Christmas. I know the Christmas carol is the 12 days of Christmas but there are six species that my true love brought to me around the Christmas period but we're going to add in another six to make it the 12 birds of Christmas. And of course, on the seventh day of Christmas my true love sent to me seven swans a-swimming which is where Dr. Richard Collins comes in in Malahide because Richard, as you probably know if you're a regular listener, did his PhD on population dynamics in mute swans. So if anybody's going to know why swans feature in the carol, then it's him, Richard.
1: Yes, Derek, I think the swan was the central bird, the central Christmas bird. Nowadays we think of the robin as being the great Christmas bird, <laughs> but in the old days, if you had a castle or a big house, you were somebody very important, you would have swan on Christmas Day. Of course, you had to be well off to do that, because swans need an awful lot of care. You had to round up the juveniles and force feed them in pits and so on, fatten them up, and then you had to have a very big oven in which yeah. to cook the swan. If you weren't quite so well off you would have a goose a goose is easier to handle it feeds itself around the farm and that kind of thing don't need an enormous oven for a goose and perhaps below that you might do duck or chicken or something like that so it's all about the stomach Christmas is all about feasting of
0: course (laughs) well we'll be looking at the 12 birds of Christmas we're going to add in a few on top of the six that we know that my true love brought to me So that's a Mooney Goes Wild special next Monday, that's Christmas night, from 10pm right here on RTE Radio 1. I can guarantee you it'll help digest the turkey or the swan or the goose or the partridge or whatever you had yourself for your lunch. Anyway, coming up later in the programme, we'll be looking at the serious issue of Roadkill. And that is all sorts of motor vehicles colliding with wild animals on our road networks right across Europe. Our researcher, Michelle Brown, has been looking at the stats on this one. Michelle?
2: Yes, Derek, I've been looking into it. It's really interesting area. And one of the main causes of mammal deaths is roadkill.
0: Thanks, Michelle. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. And some of the high-tech measures that have been... Developed to prevent collisions with wild animals on our roads. Not just here in Ireland but right across Europe. Anyway, right now we're going to say hello to Terry Flanagan and an old friend of Mooney Goes Wild, Gustavo Zolads, who are standing beside
3: the pond in Herbert Park, not too far from where we are now in Montrose. Terence! Yes, Derek, I am. Right on the edge of the pond here in Herbert Park and I'm with Gustavo. Now, Gustavo is a regular contributor to the programme. He's brought us lots and lots of wildlife over the years, from sparrowhawks to badgers. But today... He's brought me down to show me a otter in a Dublin park. Now I came down here, Derek, thinking, we're not going to see a otter in a park here in Dublin. You won't believe it. We've been watching it here for the last 20 minutes. We're getting really close to it. And we've got lovely photos and lovely videos of it. Gustavo, how did you come across this otter? Uh, I still can't believe it, uh, uh, Derek. So I
4: was yesterday working from home, but I went on my lunchtime walk, mm-hmm. as, as, as I do. And uh, part of my walk is just 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 by the pond. I always check to see what's there, and I see these bubbles coming up to the surface, and a ripple, and it kind of looked like otter. But what are the chances? So f- my first thought was a cormorant doing some sort of funny feeding, and when the individual surfaced,
3: it, it was an otter. I just just couldn't. Believe it. <laughs> we're right here beside the pond, Derek, and we've been watching him getting up and down. He's swimming along. He's so graceful as he's swimming. He goes underwater. He spends about, we're watching him here just now, about, count five, six about seven seconds underwater we can follow the bubbles on the surface of the water to see where he's coming up but he's extremely graceful and it's it's just a wonderful sight here Herbert Park is a fantastic park the land actually was donated by Sydney Herbert in, in 1903 and the park was, was really important for the great exhibition that took place here in 1907 and I think after that it became a little bit dilapidated until 1932 when Dublin Corporation took it over and when they took it over they've done a fantastic job there's 32 acres here it's an unusual park because it's a park split by a main road and yet we don't hear any traffic there's a main road running down the middle of this mm. park we were one side we're watching the the wildlife here we are looking at the planting when they planted the park here back in the early 1930s and that they concentrated on shrubs that had lots and lots of berries and also weeping willows so Probably the best time to come to this park here is in late autumn or winter time so that you're going to see not only the ducks but you're going to see all the the small birds coming in feeding, probably the likes of waxwings even coming in here and they've got lovely willow plants here. And I remember reading a survey once that said the vast majority of people who come to this park they live within three miles of the park. Now, I know you were born and reared less than three miles from here, mm. so you must have come to this park as a kid.
0: Oh, all the time. I'm less than 100 metres from that park in Donningbrook, where I was born. My father still lives there. And during the wintertime, the pond would freeze over. Now, it hasn't frozen over for a while, or maybe I just haven't been around to notice it. We would, I wouldn't say skate, but uncontrolled skid across the pond. I do not recommend this to anybody. It is dangerous. Many of the time I fell in as well, but it's a beautiful place. A great reserve for nature. Terry, I would say, but I'm curious about that otter. I've never in all my years, fifty six on the planet, heard of an otter in the pond in Herbert Park.
3: No, I haven't. Have you before? No, no, no.
4: I I knew about otters that show up occasionally in ponds in other parts but here is the first time and I've lived locally for like 12-14 years I walk it very often, i had never seen one in the pond.
3: Yeah, Nor have I either Derek and they're it, it very very difficult to see on the rivers. I remember being out with Ken Whelan a number of years ago on the actual dodder. Now the dodder is only a couple of hundred metres, maybe 200 metres from where we're standing here at the moment and I was out with Ken and we spent the day along the, the dodder, up and down the dodder didn't see a single otter but what we did see were the sprains so we 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 knew that they were there. And I know in, I think it was 2020, around then, there was the the Dublin Otter Survey. And they surveyed all of the rivers and all the waterways around the city. And they came up with 196 sightings of these. They're notoriously shy, shy creatures. You just don't see them. Now, to me, it looks like a young otter. It's probably last year's. I don't think it's this year's because they tend to spend the year with the mother. Now, there is no mother here. This one looks a little bit small. But it looks perfectly healthy.
4: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and it looks so, comf- so comfortable in this environment, yeah. even though it's a busy place. And what's is amazing is the amount of people that walk by and how many of them don't really see it you have to really pay attention they blend really well in the water they slide in the water so if you're not really looking for them
3: even though it's not a small creature you just miss it yeah it swims very low in the water unlike the mink which is a little bit higher and and the head the eyes are on the on the surface of the head and they're pointing forward so it tells us it's a carnivore so it's probably after some fish or that here but it doesn't look like it's hunting per se. It looks as if it's just relaxing. It looks like it's out for a stroll like the people here. Exactly. But
4: I've seen it catching it a couple of things and then just going back to the bank and going against the edge of the pond yeah. and just feeding there. Now, I can't really see what it's catching because it's, it's, it's you know it's small prey, yeah. but it seems to be successful at, at doing that.
3: Yeah. Now, people say, oh, they like seals. Well, they're completely different from seals. From, from, from For a start, they're so much smaller than seals, but they don't have any blubber. And what they have is they have this hair or the fur and it's really, really thick and it insulates them. And what I've noticed too, and you can see when when he's, you see he's swimming by there. He's not, what, 12, 15 metres from us. Mm -hmm. He's underwater. But what you can see are the bubbles rising up. I used to think that was the bubbles from when they were breathing out. But it's not necessarily just that. It could also be the air that's rising from the fur underneath. There he's up now again. Look at him. He's looking at us. And he's gone back under again. He doesn't seem to spend much time above water. He seems to spend most of his time below water. Have you noticed that?
4: Yes, yes. And it, it actually spent a very short period of time uh, above water. So actually, when I tried to take a picture of them, I end yeah. up with a handful picture pictures of others and a lot
3: of pictures of the water. Yes. But it's still, you know, it's, it's such a pleasure to watch. Yeah. We were taking some pictures there earlier on, Derek, and people were walking by and they said, mm-hmm. what are you taking photographs of? I said, an otter. And they said, Where? And I said, well, we walk along here all the time and have never seen him. So I'm looking at a magpie directly above me. He's the complete opposite. He's a guy that tells everyone, I'm here, I'm a magpie, look at me. The otter in the water, he blends in with the water. He's camouflaged with the water. You don't really see him unless you're looking for him. Correct.
4: But it seems to be fully aware of what happens around it because Mm. while it's feeding, it goes below water and above water. It kind of stops, looks around. It actually looks at your eyes for a couple of seconds and then it moves on. So it's definitely alert. He knows it's not on his own,
3: but it seems to be happy enough. Do you know his Irish name? You don't know no, that, Gustavo. No, I'm, I'm, I'm catching <laughs> you on the hop. Well, I'll tell you, his Irish name is Madra Iske and that translates to water dog, which is a really good description of him. Hundred
4: percent. Actually, I'm going to mention that I didn't know that the Irish word for it translates into yes. that, but that's a perfect definition of what this animal is.
0: Terry, Have I'm curious know to know what the Spanish name is because I know Gustavo is from Argentina. What's the Spanish name for the otter?
4: <laughs> they usually call them nutria. Nutria. Now, nutria. Right. Now, what we call as Nutria in Argentina is not exactly the same animal, but in Spain, they call Nutria to the same animal. Actually, it was in Spain a couple of months ago, and we were talking about Nutria, and I had to ask for the um, Latin name and English name
3: just to know yeah. if we were talking about the same thing. So, it's Nutria, how nutria. they refer to it. Well, of course, in Latin, it's Lutra, L-U-T-R-A, so it's somewhat Lutra. similar. Yes, exactly. Have you spotted any of the sprints or any of the droppings around no, I was looking around because
4: I actually was wondering how, how it made it there. And it usually goes into a little island, kind of just to rest. So I suspect there could be something there, but it's very covered with the vegetation. Yes. But it was non-obvious and also there is a lot of other animal activity around kind of dogs so it's you know well i suppose
3: on the island it would be fairly safe and there is Hmm. a a bit of height on the island there so maybe they may dig into it because they they nest in what's known as a holt which is underground and the entrance to the holt is often underwater so they go in underwater I remember that from, I don't know if you remember, a very famous film called Tarka the Otter back in the early 1900s or 1920s or so. And that was a lovely film, but it showed us the lifestyle of the otter. And it was a really beautiful film to watch. And you know what? When I watch this guy here, it reminds me of Tarka the Otter. It's its fantastic <laughs> to see it. And well, watch that.
4: Another interesting thing to note is that that little ram that's next to the um, island is usually used by Morgheim. And they actually breed there. Right. So... Since yesterday, I was paying, I've been paying attention to see if the morgaine is there yeah. or if the morgaine is up on the tree or they are at the edge, as where we see it now. Yes, we so see the kind two, of they're on the edge of the wall there. Exactly, so it's an indication if maybe some something else is right. is in there because I don't think they will go close. Uh, to the and water. of
3: course, there's lots of ducks here because as we walked around the pond, there there were about six or eight mallard duck there as well, and, and they're very content. They don't seem to be too concerned about the otter.
4: No, but they keep their distance and they are all away.
3: Yeah. So if the otter when the otter is not
4: there, which is every other day, you yeah. can yeah. see them all over. Uh, part of the pond but they are all concentrated at that end of yeah. the island and at the other end of the pond.
3: Yeah, there's one of the moorhens just taken off there now. Yeah. Um, while we were watching them he started off here beside us where we are now where he's back to here at yeah. the little island and then he moved across the pond to the far side Excuse me, on the dodder side, and now he's come back again. He's mm-hmm. he, and, and we were taking some photographs of him, and he just didn't seem to care. He was not concerned about humans at all, which is totally unlike what I would have thought a otter would be.
4: Yeah, correct. And, and even in cases where we we're standing at some distance, yeah, to take photograph, and a part of its feeding routine was just swimming closer to us. Yeah, which which, which was yeah surprising, unexpected.
3: It's great to see it because I know in Europe otters are doing poorly. Ireland is one of the, the, the last really strongholds of otter. We, I think we find them in every county in the country. And it's great to see them, that we can actually get out and see them. The Dodder is a great place as well to see wildlife because not only will you see the otter as we're seeing here now, but we see lots and lots of foxes on it as well and lots and lots of other wildlife. So, you know, it's a great place for people to get out to enjoy nature.
4: Absolutely. Like if I make a list of things I've seen on the dollar, and not far from, from yes. Harbour Park is, as you mentioned there's fox I've seen mink I've seen badgers I've seen yep. otters uh, kingfisher cormorant, like you name it the amount of species that I see there is, is, is phenomenal
3: and, and the other thing about the otter too is that he's equally at home on land or in water whereas if we go back to what we talked about mm. the seal very early on there the seals once they come out on, on land they're almost helpless this guy here he can actually run around the place when he gets out on land and that makes it easy for him to go from one waterway system to another exactly and I was actually good as to how how it find the pond? Because if it came from the Dodder,
4: which is very likely, as yeah. you said, it's like 200 meters away. Yeah. I, I don't know. I actually don't know
5: how it did. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I don't know. So, Derek, do you know? Is there any connection from the pond to the to the Dodder? You know, underground. Well, I think that's how they feed the water there. But I couldn't be
0: 100% sure. But I know that when we were kids, going back to the 70s, we used to catch eel in Herbert Park in the pond, and we always oh, yeah. used to wonder how the eel got into the pond. <laughs> we weren't thinking other. Oh, they're actually coming out of the river and they're making their way across the land which is what they were doing.
3: Yes, well it's probably the same for the otter too because even if it has to run across 200 metres for an otter in no time it would, would, would cross that land especially early in the morning or late in the evening because mostly we associate otters being most active at you know dawn and dusk and, and at that time the park here would be closed so it would be relatively easy for them to get across uh,
4: exactly you know, the distance is not massive it's mm.
3: how it finds way <laughs> yeah going back to that otter project eric but that i think we covered that on the program mm-hmm. back about two mm-hmm. or three years ago it came up with the results that there were quite a lot of otters around Dublin. i was actually surprised with the results i remember being down with matty murphy on Shirkin island he has the marine biology station down there and every year he takes in students and one of the students he takes in every year is to follow the otters on the island because there are otters on the island but he, he told me he said i feel really sorry for those students because often a student would go for a whole summer I wouldn't see an otter, not even one otter, and all they would actually see are just the sprints or the results or something that tells us that otters are present. So, really, Gustave, you're really, really lucky to have found this otter here. Oh, it, totally. As I said, I, I, I couldn't
4: believe it. But it's, again, like, it's fantastic. It talks a lot about the quality of the water that we have here and, and in the other well. So yeah,
3: brilliant. the quality of the water here, it looks quite good.
4: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And you can see well, I mean not from here, but you can see quite a lot of fish as well. Yeah. Uh, if you pay
3: attention. There's n- there's no pollutants going into it.
4: No, no, no. And I've thinking fish in this pond as well in the past, which yeah. also it needs really good water quality to
3: This is a fantastic park and a fantastic amenity going back for, since what, 1932 or so. Because on this side of the road, we have, you know, the nice walks and the wildlife. On the far side, we've got the playground, we've got the football pitches, we've got the tennis courts and so on. So it's a great place for people to come.
4: Oh, definitely, definitely. And people use it a lot and enjoy it a lot. And there is really a lot to do. It
3: it is
0: absolutely lovely. Can I just bring Richard in there, Richard? Have you ever heard of an otter in Herbert Park?
4: No,
1: Derek, but this brings back one of my most treasured Mooney memories oh, and, I'm, sh- oh, uh, and I'm sure it's one of yours as well not Herbert Park about two fifteen 15 years ago around 2011 or thereabouts a lady returned to her home in Edinburgh to find an otter curled up asleep in an armchair in the lounge do you remember that I don't Well, you will in a moment. The local SPCA were called, and the intruder was very docile, very friendly, and all the rest. So they decided that perhaps they should release it to the wild. So they took it out to the island of Skye. Skye has a good population of otters. This was a young female otter, and uh, they thought it would integrate out there and become a normal, happy, wild otter. Mm. And it didn't really, it actually fraternised with the people in a campsite and became a a pet in a sense, continued to be a pet effectively, but the problem was dogs, dogs, Mm. the dogs didn't like it, the people loved it, and the poor old otter was being harassed by the dogs, so. The authorities in Scotland thought the best thing to do with this otter is to give it a training course on how to live in the wild. So it was taken in by Charlie Hamilton. James. yes <laughs> we now been you remember now you yeah, remember yeah, no and you and I went over and <laughs> we met this otter honey in there I remember almost kissing it and you don't kiss an otter you know could bite you and it was a wonderful experience I remember that in fact the training course didn't work at all it still remained a pet otter I wonder what became of it since otters lived for about 16 years or something like that So if I were asked for an ex-cathedra pronouncement on the nature of the otter in Pervert Park, I would say it was once a pet. No self-respecting wild otter would expose itself in the way that this one is Ah. doing
3: in Pervert Park. At least that's my assessment.
0: Very interesting indeed. So what do you say to that, Terry and Gustavo?
3: Well the first thing I'd say is To me this looks like a young otter It's probably last year's pup They stay with the mother for a year or so We don't see And Gustavo hasn't seen any other adults around it So it looks like it's quite a young otter if it was reared by a human, it could have been let go here. Of course it could have, but I find it hard to think. What do you think, Gustavo? Yeah,
4: I, I would be unusual. Uh, I know I've seen myself similar size other two, three weeks ago, three, four kilometres from here on the dollar. Yeah. And shortly after it was with an adult. So wondering if it's the same animal. But um, that one was actually quite tame as well. It actually was, was feeding and... Obviously not as close to people, but but, but there were people around walking and some of them taking pictures and he was quite tame as well. It could be, could be a pet, but... uh, But it's mysterious. It is, yes, yes, Mm. yes, yes.
0: We're not really sure,
3: Derek, to be honest.
0: It's all speculation, Terry. It doesn't matter anyway, but a great story. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Flanagan and Gustavo Zolads for bringing that to our attention. You can see the video and some photographs on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney, because as you know seeing is believing now. I want to take you back to last year. Oh, and before I do that let me tell you that when you're on the website you will find Mooney's box of docs and what we've done is we've loaded three festive documentaries in that subsection of our website so you can podcast them when you're out for your Christmas walks. And they're wonderful. And one of them is about the holly and the ivy. And after we broadcast the programme last year, I was contacted by traditional musician Cormac Brannock, who had a story to tell me about the recording he made of the holly and the ivy, which I used in the documentary.
6: The holly and the ivy, when they are both full-grown Of all the trees that are in the wood, the holly bears the crown
0: Now, the female voice that you hear performing that particular rendition of The Holly and the Ivy, and isn't it just sublime, is American actress Vanessa Williams but the man playing the whistle on the track is traditional Irish musician Cormac Branock, And it was he who contacted me after we broadcast that documentary last Christmas to tell me about their association. And he's here again to tell you. So, Cormac, you're very welcome to the programme. You join us from your home in County Wicklow. So, tell us the story.
7: Well, Derek, uh, it was Martin Dunley who heard you playing The Holly and the Ivy, recorded by Vanessa Williams in 2004, uh, on which... Martin and I guessed it, and, and I really wanted to just give you the background to the, what we think is an interesting story that connects our Ireland and Vanessa Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really goes back to 2001, three weeks after 9-11. Uh, we were supposed to tour the East Coast and the West Coast. Some gigs had been organised by our agent at the time, um, Sandy Berniger, and uh, we decided to go over in any event and play, and one of our stops was in Fordham University in New York, the Bronx, in a program called 100,000 Welcomes. We played a track from our album, Music for Whistling Guitar, The Foggy Jew. We, We played it in honor of the firemen of New York who had lost their colleagues and who were doing the great job there. And at that time, believe it or not, Vanessa Williams, uh, the US um, artist, uh, singer, actor, actress, etc., was driving her children to ballet and she was having a fight with them in the car. The, the children wanted to play another radio station and Vanessa listens to that programme on a Saturday morning and she, Vanessa won the battle and then she heard us at that time playing that tune and dedicating it to the firemen. Well, she tracked us down and when I arrived back, In Wicklow. I got a check from her for ten copies of her albums and I didn't know who she was to be quite honest. (laughs) Uh, When I asked my nephew uh, did he know of a Vanessa Williams uh, he looked at me uh, incredulously and filled me in and so that started really uh, our uh, connection with Vanessa Williams.
0: But when did you all get together?
7: It was three years later, actually, 2007, and again, Martin was contacted by um, the wonderful uh, music producer, arranger, uh, Rob Mathes, M-A-T-H-E-S, and he told us that Vanessa Williams wanted us to play on two tracks on her Christmas album, Silent Night and The Holly and the Ivy and... We were thrilled, of course. And would we come over to uh, London? Yes, we would. Would we record in Abbey Road Studios? Yes, we would love to record in Abbey Road Studios. We went over and we recorded both of those songs and we met her for the first time. And I have to say that she's an absolute lady, uh, very pleasant to work with, uh, as was Rob. And following on from that recording, Derek, we got invited then to play in um, Broadway in December 2004 a couple of months later, uh, in the Palace Theatre. Uh, I think we had five nights in the Palace Theatre and then she asked us to stay on for a TV show called Live by a Request devised by Tony Bennett, I think, in the 50s or 60s.
0: Well, good for you, Cormac, and it's the best version of the Holly and the Ivy I've ever heard. And I know that, Amy, you like it too, don't you?
8: Oh yeah, I think, it's, I think it's great. I love that I love that tune and I love the, the, the words about the holly and the ivy. But the, the pipe at the beginning is lovely playing that. It puts a lovely emphasis on it and you get the whole atmosphere building up and then the voice comes in. It's, it's great because, you know, on Krillin, I and on the holly and the ivy, they're the real plants for Christmas time to go way back to pre-Christian times because they were the only mm. ones that were actually alive in the middle of the winter. Everything else, all our deciduous trees had lost their leaves, they looked dead. But because the Cailan the and the inon have their leaves on them the life was still in those the sun god was going to come back it predates all of this Christianity business and it really tells us that the year hasn't gone the light hasn't gone you know on, and this is what, what we're looking at there so the whole thing is commemorated lovely in that recording and I enjoyed listening to it and I will be enjoying listening to it again when you play it again
7: Well, Gourmíiln Margaret hey and is just the got a chlishtáil and I love listening to your voice and Richard and Derek and I must say that I love your programme. I think it's a, a fantastic programme. And I hope RT will continue th- with the programme for many years to come.
8: Cormac, and why that's on Náður?
7: It's problem on Nadir. I mean, I, I, I love nature. Um, I moved to Wicklow, um, County Wicklow, um, particularly, uh, specifically, I should say, up to Lara around that area in, in 1998 and i'm still living in county wicklow at snaccluckalee and greystones now one of my pet hates i suppose is to see the the amount of animals that are killed unnecessarily completely unnecessarily on the road by cars and i'm specifically i'm talking about deer and foxes and badgers and cats and dogs and I just (laughs) maybe it's it's due to lack of technology I don't understand it but I just don't understand why uh, this slaughter of our animals continues on our roads in in this day and age I mean I know there is a um, deer whistle that has been in operation for a while and it's more particularly in the states Uh, it's a small little device that you attach to the front of the car and it sends out a a signal to the deer to not to cross the roads and I believe that if you have pets, dogs or cats in your car that they won't hear it so they're not uh, in danger of it. But it's the other animals that um, seem to be left out of the loop and I'm just wondering do you guys have any um, information on that?
8: Yeah certainly a lot of animals are killed on the road and I mean we have a great reduction in biodiversity. We've got very many fewer animals than we had in the 1970s. So therefore you would think we would have very many fewer casualties. But of course, the thing is people are driving much faster in their cars. They, they, they're not paying any attention to what's on the road. So you can't really blame the animals. The animals are doing what they always did. It's very much shem that the, the luck that the blame is on the, is on the people driving their cars far too fast.
0: Well the animals aren't being blamed here Aina I don't think that's what Cormac means but if a deer jumps out in front of you and you're driving along within the speed limit what can
8: you do? I understand that and it's an awful danger in fact and this is one of the reasons why on other fora and other places one talks about having culls of deer because the numbers Mm. have got unmanageable and certainly it is Dreadful, And I've actually barely escaped myself at one point down in Wicklow. The thing jumped out after I'd gone past and the car behind me ran into it and it was a terrible accident. But I understand that you have no warning and there it is. But I mean, if you're doing 60 miles an hour and you hit something and you're doing 30 miles an hour and you hit something, the impact is less. And if you're coming slow, you have more chance of seeing things, you have more chance of stopping. And if it's pitch dark and you're driving in a country area where these things are liable to come out... You have to take responsibility and not be tearing along at a mile a minute. Yeah. I mean I see foxes myself on the roads, I see badgers, and indeed and sometimes I nearly have an accident except for hanging out the window to see what is the remains that squashed yeah. as I go past. Because there's all sorts of things killed on the roads. Motorways aren't so bad because the walls keep them out, but rural roads that really people shouldn't be going that fast on are littered with dead bodies too. So I mean good Lat Gojirock and comic shin fear
7: but i mean leaving the the speed aside if maybe if we had a law for example i mean i'm thinking of humanity dick you know uh, the wonderful humanity dick richard martin mp for uh, the eccentric member for galway written by a guy called Peter Phillips, an English guy who came over to Ireland on holidays many years ago and he heard about Humanity Dick and couldn't find any books written about him. I know there are a number of books now and, and decided to write a book himself about uh, Humanity Dick. And I, I mean, if Humanity Dick were alive today, I think he would be quite disgusted.
0: Who was Humanity Dick?
7: Well, Humanity Dick, I mean, uh, 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 Aina Perhaps may know more about him than I do, but I mean from the book that I read. Um, yes, I do, of
8: he, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he
7: was a fascinating individual. I mean, he was an animal lover. He owned many thousands of acres in Connemara. He was a smuggler, also. He, he was, was a fond. crack.
8: He was a crack jewelist and killed killed people jeweling. Jeweling was was all he the was, rage yeah, in those I, days. And then I, he got right. sorry. He was called Humanity Dick. He was Humanity Martin, and he was Crack Shot Dick. <laughs> and then eventually he got called Humanity Dick because he put in place legislation for the, the removal of cattle apparently that was where it was the way the mm. cattle were moved from you know Correct. one country to another and the terrible conditions in which they they were travelled that he got legislation put through the parliament in Britain but he voted for the Act of Union he was bribed in that direction he came from Galway and he didn't yeah. get nominated then he became, he bought the seats in Leitrim I mean things were wonderful in the late 1700s how you could manage to live politicians you know had a different way going on in those days but certainly his his, his um, love for wildlife and that was certainly something that got him the name Humanity Dick. His wife fancied Wolf Tone. Oh no, I tell a lie, That's I right. tell a lie. Wolf Tone fancied <laughs> his wife. But she That's didn't right. fancy him. She ran away with somebody else. <laughs> and when he came back from... Well,
0: neither of them are
8: around. <laughs> no, 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 no. But Annie Wolf Tone didn't, didn't run away with her. She ran away with a different fella. When he came back from being away someplace, there she was, gone. But anyhow, he was a very interesting figure altogether indeed. But anyway, you're speaking about him from a point of view of his relationships with how worried he was about the unkindness to animals and certainly that's why he got the name Humanity Dick you're quite right
7: That's right and, and I mean he didn't when he, when he found people mistreating animals uh, according to the book again um, and maybe folklore he imprisoned them on an island of his and he made them beg for forgiveness I mean he did not feed them he did not give them any water and when they begged forgiveness he ma- made sure that they gave a note uh, that they would not mistreat animals again, and when he and and there were other English, and uh, we we have, mustn't forget the other English. Um, MPs he wasn't English; he
8: was Irish. No one we'll just stop that. He was just, Irish. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. I mean, just because yeah. he was in, par- in Parliament in Westminster doesn't make him an Englishman.
0: That's right. Don't yeah but, out to our guests,
8: I don't know, no, no, but he wasn't English.
0: <laughs> but it does sound a tad draconian to be imprisoned. How was
8: she, you know me? Yeah, yeah. Taking yeah. away
0: their liberty and not feeding them. Was humanity them Dick a vegetarian?
8: Alone? Did he eat steaks? <laughs>
0: is it well, recorded sorry did you say he was a vegetarian no
8: no I'm asking
7: you oh yeah I don't know I no don't well, know. I don't, don't know either. that wasn't in yeah, the book I read yeah.
8: either indeed yeah
7: yeah I mean it would make a fasci- fascinating uh, movie and I mean no doubt he's a, a complex individual um, uh, and he had his dark side and his good side certainly his good side from an animal point of view uh, Sean Brightly
0: Cormac, thank you very much indeed for getting in touch and reminding me of that wonderful version of the Holly and the Ivy and telling us all about humanity, Dick Cana. <laughs> Could you you very
8: Cormac? Much. Agus,
7: to you all and to everyone on RT. The
8: Holly bears a
6: bark as bitter as any gall, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ for to redeem us soul Rising of the sun And the running of the deer The playing of the merry organ And singing in the choir And we sing Lulay, lulay Thou tiny child Bye-bye, lulay.
0: quite emotional listening to that thank you very much indeed Cormac Branock, and the Holly and the Ivy documentary can be heard again if you wish to podcast it it really is a terrific listen by just visiting our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney and clicking on the box of docks Mooney's box of docks and don't forget next Monday night this day week Christmas night here in RT Radio 1 the Mooney Goes Wild special about the 12 birds of Christmas and that's not all on the 26th Sixth of December, Saint Stephen's Day, Boxing Day, or Law on Droline, we'll tell you all about the Ren. Ran the Ran, the king of all bars and Stephen's Day
7: was caught in the force. Although he was little, his honor was great. Jump up my lads and give us a trait.
9: The wren is a real survivor and it's a bird that's common in all of our gardens. We know that from the Irish Garden Bird Survey, it's always up in the top 10 and probably under-recorded because it does skulk and hide. It doesn't come to bird tables as much. What we also know though from other survey work and research that's been done by universities as well is that it's probably our most widespread bird in Ireland because they're not just found in your garden, they're found in the local woodland, the local park. They find them in bogs. You find them up mountains, on offshore islands, on cliffs, all over the place. It seems that they can turn their wings to a wider range of habitats than other Irish birds. They seem to have cracked the secret of success. They kind of slip under the radar they hide away in the undergrowth. So what they're essentially looking for is places where you've got lots of tangled vegetation, lots of thorns things like gorse, they really like that very much. They can hide away in there anywhere you have hedgerows, anywhere you have an understory in a woodland and that habitat in Ireland, it's, it's, quite, it's quite prevalent, particularly because the wren doesn't require a very big territory. So they can even survive in very small pockets. So even the smallest urban park will have a wren or two in there that are managing to make a life for themselves. Because they're so small, their needs are quite easily met within a small patch of vegetation. So it's a very successful species and one that you find in pretty much every habitat across Ireland apart from open water. And That's the real secret of their success. They can survive where most other creatures can't.
7: Oh, Mrs. Clancy's a very good woman, a very good woman, a very good woman. Mrs. Clancy's a very good woman, she'd give us a
0: penny to bury the ran. Mrs. Clancy sounds like a lovely woman indeed. And if that weren't enough, on Saturday the 30th of December at 8am in the morning, another Mooney Goes Wild special presented by Terry Flanagan, this time about
3: pigeons. The results of the first Olympic Games in 776 BC were delivered by Pigeon. Every athlete brought a homing Pigeon to the Games and when the event was over, they were released to announce the winners, thus ensuring that villagers were able to welcome their heroes home. News of Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo first arrived in London by Carrier Pigeon. Reuters started its European business by using homing pigeons to carry information between financial houses. Picasso admired them, often painting them, and he even named his daughter Paloma, which is Spanish for pigeon. And Charles Darwin kept and studied pigeons, observing artificial selection, thereby helping him with his theory of evolution. And he dedicated a large part of his famous book On the Origin of Species to his work on pigeons. All the
7: world seems in tune on a spring afternoon When we're poisoning pigeons in the park.
0: Steady on there, Terence. You don't want to be poisoning pigeons in the park. It's not even spring. Anyway, you can hear that documentary on Saturday 30th of December at 8 a.m. So lots of nature for you, courtesy of Mooney Goes Wild and RTE Radio 1. Now let's get back to Roadkill. I mentioned it at the top of the programme. Our researcher Michelle Brown is in studio now. Michelle, what have you got?
2: So to begin, I had a mm-hmm. look at some of the numbers. and um, we have to indicate the extent of the problem here in Ireland. Yeah. And as you'll hear, we actually only have very fragmented data. Okay? Okay. So let me quickly paint a picture of what's happening globally. There was a report published earlier this year in this journal called Biological Reviews um, on the area of roadkill, and they took an analysis of animal populations worldwide. Mm-hmm. So quoted in the Irish News in March, um, the lead researcher Lauren Moore, she's from the Nottingham Trent University, said the extent of roadkill is far more shocking than we previously imagined and worse some mammal populations could reach a tipping point so that's a critical threshold that when crossed could become irreversible. That's not good. This report reviewed 83 studies investigating mammal deaths across 69 species and they found collisions with vehicles on the road was found to be the most common cause of death in almost a third um, of 150 animal population study.
0: Wow, that's very high.
2: Yeah, that's ahead of disease, hunting and predation. The report said that some conservation biologists think that the effects of roads on wild animal populations could be one of the most pressing contemporary conservation issues. Mm. So it's big. And then if you look um, in Europe, um, in 2020, another study was done by the Centre for Environmental and Marine Studies in Lisbon. And that said that roadkill risk and population vulnerability in European birds and mammals looked at 90 roadkill surveys from 24 European countries. So they estimated that 194 million birds and 29 million mammals are killed each year on oh European roads. Oh my goodness,
0: it's hard to believe figures like that, but they're yeah. the figures we have.
2: It's really high, but like, um, it also says that road densities in Europe are among the highest in the world, okay? Um, and the animals with the highest predicted roadkill rates uh, would be the blackbird and the soprano pipistrel bat.
0: Now, what about Ireland?
2: Okay, so it's hard to know exact figures about roadkill in Ireland. Uh, we are not comprehensively recording roadkill on any national database. And Derek, years ago, you talked to Paul Whelan, who's actually a lichenologist, and a wildlife enthusiast down in Foughton Cork and he set up at the time a database on biology.ie where people could record Roquehill and he explained to me he initially set it up to look at Annex IV species, which means mammals under threat. Mm -hmm. But due to demand from the public, he extended it out. And unfortunately, the site was hacked and its funding was discontinued. And so it's no longer there. But he said that his work did help a lot of councils. And we did find out a lot of important information from that database uh, for as long as it lasts.
0: I do remember that now that you mention it. But what's happening today?
2: Um, now Transport Infrastructure Ireland are doing something. They maintain the national road networks, which totals about 5,300 kilometres of road. So that's split fairly evenly between our national primary roads. That's the m one to M50, and the national secondary roads, which are the N51 to the N87. Mm-hmm. Um, so the local authorities and county councils then will take care of regional roads. So Transport Infrastructure Ireland, or TII, have been working on this roadkill app where motorway maintenance operatives record data on roadkill found on some of the network it maintains. So local authorities and public partnerships manage the rest of the national networks. Mm-hmm. OK, so people might remember this app, which was showcased in Back for the Brink earlier this year. Yes. So I had a look at the data they've been collecting since 2017. As you can imagine, this is a huge task. It's still very much a work in progress and it isn't used systematically across all our road network. And um, there's also problems gathering such data. For instance, I was speaking to one maintenance officer and he said a lot of the roadkill they get is unidentifiable. So they'll just say bird, for example, you know, sometimes... So they
0: don't know which species of bird it is,
2: but they yeah. know it's a bird. Yeah, but what, what we can also learn from that is like what animals are being killed, OK? So, you know, you can see there's lots of foxes, rabbits, some deer um, on the unprotected category. And from the protected species, there'd be barn owls, badgers, pine martens, hedgehogs. The maintenance officer I spoke to said you could come across anything, you know, even buzzards, the occasional swan. So look, there's also been a lot of academic papers on Roadkill in Ireland and we can put a link to them on or website yeah, but I'll give idea. you an example okay Yes In 2012 Amy Hay from the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences in Cork did a report called Annual Patterns of Mammalian Mortality on Irish Roads That's Rhodes. a bit of a
5: tongue
0: twister Michelle okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> She noted that roads are fast becoming one of the leading causes of mortality in a number of mammalian species Okay, okay so
0: that correlates with what's going on in Europe
2: Yeah so like you know, and they were saying rabbits, hedgehogs, badgers, foxes were the four most common fatalities on um, the roads that they studied at that time, and mm-hmm. then that accounted for about 80% of the mammals killed. And after that, it was rodents, mink, hare, otter, pine martens, and stoats. And um, actually, there were some interesting observations in this report which said that road traffic uh, represent the most important cause of death. Of otters in most European countries. Oh, okay. Okay. A lot of the reports will say things like this, like that motorists should be informed of the time of year where certain species are expecting to be crossing, and in order to increase their alertness, you know, like you know, maybe around breeding times.
0: Very good idea.
2: Like you, know, interesting. Another report that Amy did later just looked specifically on hedgehogs. It did say that hedgehogs are, are one of the most common road fatalities in Europe, but it was relatively lower in Ireland compared to other countries in Europe, and they think that might be because we have a lower road density here. What
0: about badgers?
2: Yeah, there was a big study done when the Wicklow N11 badger study was done. This was when part of the N11 was being upgraded to motorway status. It was carried out by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine in conjunction with the National Parks and Wildlife Service and the Zoology Department in Trinity. And it looked at the impacts on badger ecology and health before, during and after the roadworks using GPS tracking collars on badgers.
0: What did they find?
2: So some interesting um, observations there. Males were more, li- more likely to be killed in autumn and winter. Females more li- likely to be killed in spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Most deaths were within the badger's home range when they were going about their normal nightly travel.
0: So what about preventative measures then? How can we stop this from happening in the first place?
2: OK. Transport Infrastructure Ireland say they implement environmental guidelines and standards to look after the protection of Ireland's native habitats and species during the planning, construction and operation of our national roads. So we're just going going to hear a little bit about natural screening, but other examples of mitigation measures would include mammal underpasses, outer ledges, bat boxes and mammal-resisting fencing. But Barn owls were identified early on as an animal species that was impacted by motorways in particular. And you've covered this on this programme already, Derek.
0: We have and on Back from the Brink, but it's no harm to cover it again. Why not?
2: So um, I have a clip here that was taken last September when Terry Flanagan went out with Dr Sarah Jane Phelan, who is environmental scientist for Transport Infrastructure Ireland. And in this clip, Sarah Jane explains how um, Transport Infrastructure Ireland make the road safe from collision with owls on the back of this research. So one of the most important measures we hope that will make a big difference is the implementation of natural screening on the roadside verges. So this will just basically create a barrier that it will encourage the birds to fly at a greater height across the carriageway, thereby reducing the risk of collisions with vehicles.
3: And when do you hope to implement this?
2: Well, in any national road projects going forward now, this has to be taken into account at the planning stage. And wherever it is implemented, this has to be part of any project now it has to be consideration in any landscape treatments monitoring will have to be carried out so post-construction monitoring and that might include road casualty surveys just to keep an eye on the numbers we have no results as yet but we're hopeful in the future that we'll be able to see a reduction in these incidents across the the national road network
0: well, th- that's one good measure that TII are implementing, and I think it's a great one to be honest with you. Yeah, and it works.
2: So roadkill has many complexities, as you know, mm-hmm. and certain animals pose a greater hazard to driver on the road than others, and also people are often unsure who they need to contact if they hit or injure an animal or find a hit or injured or even dead animal on the yes. road. Now, one of our regular contributors, Mm -hmm. um, herpetologist Robert Candola, went and spoke to Seamus Nolan of the Glen McNass Pure Mile Residence Group that monitors roadkill in his area.
5: We'll go back to when the deers were first introduced to to Wicklow. They arrived in Powerscourt Estate around 1860. They multiplied very quickly and escaped into the Wicklow Mountains. And I remember my father telling me that in around 1940, he seen the first deer up on the Fall Hill and it was a big occasion to see one of them because they weren't around at the time and they have multiplied now to the extent that they're a huge problem for farmers and for people travelling the roads. Even the tourists and apart from the tourists, the local people that are aware of them are being um, involved in accidents with them.
0: What's the latest on deer management on our roads, Michelle?
2: Last year, the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, with the support from the MPWS and Quilta, Mm -hmm. established a deer management strategy group. And the final report in that um, was released last week. And Minister Charlie McConnell acknowledged the growing deer population is a considerable problem. And he said that in the new year, they're going to action these recommendations. So this would include um, the creation of a deer management agency, the establishment Mm -hmm. of local deer management units and changes to the open seasons order and we can put a link to that on our website.
0: Michelle, who's actually responsible for managing roadkill on our roads?
2: Yeah, the responsibility for managing large animal roadkills such as deer and public roads lies with the relevant local authority or county councils in the area.
0: All right, that's interesting to note. Now, what about high-tech?
2: Well, you pointed me in the direction, Derek, of a company in Australia called Wildlife Safety Solutions yeah. that have virtual fencing. That fencing is activated by approaching headlights, headlight, which emits a combination of sound and flashing lights that alert the animal that a car is coming that will reduce the startling effect. And when I looked into it, it was set up by this man who was just like really upset about the amount of roadkill in Tasmania. But when I looked a little bit further into it, this technology was actually developed in Europe by Andreas Schalk, and he's on Rainier and if you want to see how this um, opto-acoustic alert works and looks we'll put a link to it on our website. Um, Another little tech solution Derek is one that you pointed to me and there's going to be loads and you know people can email in their suggestions but one you emailed to me was save a deer whistle which is a wind activated whistle that alerts animals up to a quarter of a kilometre away that your vehicle is approaching.
0: Yeah, it's a great little device and you attach it to the wing mirror of the car and the passing wind emits this sound that apparently we can't hear or pets that we may have inside the car, but the animals on the road can. How do they figure that one out, Michelle? Nobody knows. Anyway, go on, yeah. It's a good idea, though.
2: Look, uh, just to finish up, um, the National Parks and Wildlife Service um, also pointed me in the direction of Irish Wildlife Matters, which gives a list that can offer like advice or even sometimes rehabilitation for people who come across animals on the road. Like, you know, there's all kinds of specialists ranging from bats to swifts, badgers, hedgehogs, barn owls. All rehabilitators must hold a license from the National Parks and Wildlife Service for animals in their care. But you can find out information about this on irishwildlifematters.ie.
0: Michelle, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. And speaking of looking out for animals, wild and domestic, our vet Andrew Byrne from The Brave Vet has been in touch with a timely reminder why we should not give pets as
5: gifts at Christmas. Pets are wonderful. There's no doubt about that. And it's easy to see why a pet may seem to be the perfect Christmas present. But unfortunately, this often ends badly, especially for the pet. Getting a pet is a really big decision, and it's one that needs careful thought and planning. That's why it's really not a good idea to make a pet a surprise present. The person receiving the pet, the person thinking about getting a pet, needs to ask themselves some questions. What type of pet do you like? What type of pet is suitable for your lifestyle? How much time have you got that you can give to this pet? What's your your work life? Are you working from home? Are you working away from home? How often are you away from the house? Uh, Will the pet be at home on their own for long periods of time? What about the size of your house and garden? And what type of pet would be suitable in, in, in your environment? you go away lost your great holidays who could look after them will you be able to find a kennel or a place suitable to mind your pet while you're away look upon them as a new family member and respect their needs and plan carefully and please don't give them a surprise gift for christmas
0: and as vet andrew byrne has said remember a pet is part of the family not a gift for christmas Thank you, Andrew. Just time, I think, to say hello to our colleague Nikki Coughlin from RTE Junior who's got some podcasts to recommend. One that you might like, ain't it, given that you're into trees and former president of the Tree Council of Ireland. Nikki. Thanks, Derek.
10: Yeah, we have a podcast series called Ireland's Unreal. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy set of stories about real and imagined Ireland by Mayo-based storyteller Hugh Cooney. And we've made a whole new bunch just in time for Christmas. One of them is called Trees Are Good, Trees Are Good. And in it, Hugh relates the trees of Ireland to the stages of our life In this particular excerpt he discusses the hawthorn Hawthorn or the scat bush is a very special tree in Ireland Though abundant in hedgerows of Ireland They are very much associated with the fairies It flowers and paints the countryside white in late May into June If you see one standing in the middle of a field That's said to be a fairy tree their fruit, the haw, is a little red berry that comes out in autumn. The haw is yummy, tastes like a little apple, but make sure to spit out the pit. Like hawthorn Tay, the haws are very relaxing and said to be good for your heart, which you need to look after when you're middle-aged, which is where this tree is placed. The new shoots of the leaves in spring are said to taste like bread and cheese, and it's true, I've tried it. Though I wouldn't recommend picking them from a lone bush. You'll end up fired into a ditch or with your knees bent backwards or something.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Nicky. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch, and our ace researcher, Michelle Brown. We'll be back next Monday night with a special programme from 10 p.m. about the 12 birds of Christmas. That's Christmas night. And on Christmas Eve, I'll be with Santa talking to all the children of Ireland. In fact, I better head off now to the North Pole. Get my coat on where I'm going. It's going to be very cold. Very cold indeed. Oh, 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 oh. Bye. <laughs>